Good morning. If you have a Bible, turn it open to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, as you're going there, uh, I just want to welcome you. Thanks so much for being here this morning. We are going through this ancient sermon uh, written by Paul, spread throughout the churches of Asia, Asia Minor in the first century. And this book just completely opens up in such an uncluttered way what it looks like to be in Christ, to be in relationship with the, with Jesus, the King, and to be His church. And so uh, we have been exploring this book kind of idea by idea all the way through, and uh, we are at a turning point today. We're at the halfway mark, uh, maybe not in messages, but at least in text. So uh, that's exciting. We're at a turning point. The first three chapters have been all about exploring what is true of those who follow Christ. What is the identity? Who are you really? What is the identity of uh, Christ followers? What is, what is the reality that defines what it means to be church? And now we're turning towards the, the second half, chapters 4 through 6, where we look at how we live in response to that. So that is very exciting. We have kind of plumbed the depth of the gospel. What what has happened? What has God done in and through Jesus? What has he made us? And now uh, we've just finished this amazing prayer in chapter 3 of Paul where he prays that what is true of Christ's followers would actually be true of our experience. Right? That, w- that the Spirit of God would sensitize our heart to his truth such that it would stick to us and we'd be transformed and we'd feel and grasp the depth of of God's love for us revealed in Jesus. So, uh, we are going to get into the text this morning, looking at Ephesians 4, verse 1. Follow along with me, we'll begin here. Uh, the text is on your screen here in the ESV, what I'm, that's what I'm preaching from, so come along with me. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called, to one hope that belongs to our call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. So here we are. Paul is turning his energy from what is true now to turn our attention to what ought to be true of of our lives. What is true of us according to God now what ought to be true of our practical daily experience. So um, here's our plan for the morning. We're going to ask this text basically four questions. What does it mean to walk worthy of our calling what does it look like and what's the aim what's the purpose of that and what are the resources for it so what what is the worthy walk what in the world are we talking about so let's let's get right into the first words of this text come along with me i therefore a prisoner for the lord so paul reintroducing himself like he's already said you know, ancient letters, they begin kind of letting you know who's writing it from the beginning. You know, it's like, hey, I'm Paul, I'm sending this to you, so-and-so, and then they get into the body of their letter. But he's already introduced himself. Now he's reminding us again of his circumstances. Uh, and so he says, therefore, I'm a prisoner. Notice two things. He says, for the Lord. 
I love this. I'm a prisoner for the Lord. He could have done some other things here with his language. He could have talked about, I'm a prisoner of the Roman Empire. Or I'm a prisoner because there are some people out to get me. He could have blame shifted and put his circumstances on top. But instead, he puts his relationship with King Jesus on top, and it defines his circumstances. So I am a prisoner. I happen to be a prisoner right now. But I am one for the Lord. Right? And, and so this translates for us, because we tend to live in our lives as if our ego is central, and whatever we are, we are for ourselves, or maybe for our family, but our sphere doesn't get out too big. And so Paul says, no, whatever I am doing, I am doing for the Lord. I happen to be chained. I am so for the Lord. The freedom that I have in Christ has actually bound me uh, to this Roman prison for the Lord. Whatever circumstance you find yourself in can be used for the Lord. Secondly, he reminds them that he is, in fact, a prisoner, that he is bound by something. Now, I love when, when you're trying to impress someone, you name drop, right? So I was like hanging out with so-and-so the other day. And you kind of throw that out there to impress people. Paul's kind of doing that with a twist. He's status dropping. I happen to be a prisoner. Normally we like look on that as pretty shameful, right? Like, whoa, bummer. You're... But he says, no, this is, this is, he's boasting in this here, right? He's saying, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. And so he's trying to get you to see that, hey, look, I'm about to ask you to put some things on the line. I'm about to ask you to get really serious about putting yourself out there, out of your comfort zone. And I'm, I'm, I just want to show you that I've put myself out there too, right? He's kind of giving himself some credibility for what he's about to ask us to pay attention to in our own lives. And so he's saying, look, I want you to put some serious things on the table for the Lord. And by the way, I happen to be writing this from prison, right? I'm not asking you to do anything I'm not willing to do. And so there's kind of no excuse for us, those who are reading it. There's no excuse to shy away from living fully for the Lord. Now, it says, the prisoner for the Lord, one bound by loyalty to King Jesus. This is what he says to the church. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, what? Urge you. I'm not just telling you, and I'm urging you, I'm pleading with you, I'm exhorting you. I want you to be moved now. I'm urging you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Basic Bible study 101. Whenever you see a therefore in a text, you should ask, why is the therefore, or what is the therefore, therefore? Remember this? Maybe not. Okay, so you should know that now. You've got it in your heads. What on earth is the therefore, therefore? He has just talked about everything that is true of us in Christ. Right? You were dead. You've been made alive. You've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Sins forgiven. Right? Part of a new humanity. The temple of God. The place where God chooses to dwell. All of this true of you. So because of that, I'm urging you now to walk in a manner worthy of the call of God. If we start with, what does God want me to do? We'll always end up frustrated, lacking motivation. But if we begin with the question, what has God done? It completely motivates us. So Paul 
gets us to action after he's told us everything that God's already done. I therefore urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Here we are at the crux of Ephesians, right at the center of the book, essentially. Chapters 1 through 3 come before this sentence, chapters 4 through 6 right after. Here at the very center of the book, you get this amazing Amazing sentence. This is what he's saying, essentially. At the crux of the letter, you get this one word, and it's a word picture. We translate it as worthy, right? Worthy. But it's a single Greek word, and it is axios. Say it with me. Axios. All right, very good. Experts in the Greek. Axios. Say it with me. Axios. We do it. We live it. We live in light of it. What is, what is Paul talking about? What is the worthy walk? What is axios? Well, it's a, it's a word with a picture in it. And, and if I could get the image uh, up on the screen of my little eBay purchase this week. Um, we've got uh, essentially what you're dealing with with axios is a metaphor. It's a word picture of a scale, right? With a crossbeam across the top and a post in the middle and two pans on either side. And it's used to measure balance, right? To, to balance things. And so, um, it, it, again, like, sorry for the size. I bought it on eBay. It looked way bigger. So um, we do image magnification. It's like, Lee, you're going to have to help me out this week. Um, so what do you do with an axios? What do you do with a scale? Well, you, you if you want to measure out flour, you put a, like a one pound uh, lead weight on one pan. Don't try it here because this can't even really support Legos. I tried. And um, apparently this one's for show. But um, so you'd, you'd put like a one pound weight on one side, right? And then you'd measure out flour in the other until it is balanced. And then you have a pound of flour, right? You've, they are axios. They're worthy. Flour and lead are now worthy of each other. And so that's the word picture that Paul puts at the very center of Ephesians. Worthy. Axios. And so... The unknown weight of what is being uh, measured in one pan is equivalent to the weight of what you already know in the other pan. Then you have a worthy, worthy set of scales, right? And so uh, it could be anything. Things as different as lead and flour, but yet they fit together. They're axios. They're worthy. They fit together. And for Ephesians, Paul is saying, look, the, the Ephesian scales are not about flour and lead. They're about God's calling on one hand and our walking on the other. The things being measured out are the call of God and the walk of God's people. Are you tracking? All right, so call on one hand, walk on the other. And Paul is saying those two things need to fit. They need to share equal value. They need to be worthy, balanced out. Okay? And so when our walking and God's calling are axios, worthy, in balance, then we're whole. We're living mature lives, responsible and responsive to God's call, congruent with what he's called us to be. And the whole letter of Ephesians is actually designed to help us live in equilibrium between the two. Chapters 1 through 3, about calling. Chapters 4 through 6, about walking. Now, God calls, we walk. And those two things are supposed to be worthy. But if you're paying attention to yourself or others, you know, quite simply, the reality is that we aren't so axios, are we? 
Right? There's a gap so often between walking and calling. And uh, if you're looking for an Axios person or an Axios church, you're always going, I think, going to run into one of three distortions. I think we tend to distort the relationship between calling and walking in three very common ways. So let me kind of unpack a few ways that we tend to get out of axios, out of balance, unworthy, and then we'll look at what Paul says worthiness looks like, okay? Um, Three things. The The first thing I think that we tend to do in terms of getting this out of sync is we we walk as if we earn our calling, right? Where our walking becomes an effort to get calling. So we put things into this side, hoping that it measures out to some kind of favor and calling. And so if we follow the right rules rightly, it gets me approval and acceptance and favor. And we call this moralism, right? Where I am being run by ethical demands rather than I'm being run by a relationship that results in an ethical life. Or legalism, or Jesus plus, right? For the, the simple of us in the room. This is Jesus plus. Jesus plus the right behaviors gets me calling, right? Are we tracking so far? Do we ever live like that's the case, right? You kind of mess up and you think, wow, I better put enough things into the walking thing in order to make sure that calling is irrevocable. And so we, we live as if we earn the calling. That's the, the first distortion. And so this person is just as lost as the person who is walking any way they want, right? Because they're lost in their goodness. Rather than being captivated and motivated by the calling of God, by what Jesus has done, by trust in him, we end up living as if all of God's call is dependent upon our own performance. And yet Jesus himself said in Mark chapter 2, like, I, I've come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. So if you want something to do with Jesus, it involves a, an acknowledgement, an awareness of there's something sick and broken in me, that, that I need a rescuer, right? And I need him to make me well. It's God coming, this is the picture, it's God coming towards sin, towards sinners, rather than the other way around. He comes in his own initiative and his own love and his own grace to restore and to make right. And so that's a huge piece of the picture. The, the second distortion where we get walking and calling out of whack, out of balance, is um, where um, we kind of walk um, essentially divorced from our calling. Like we, we do our own walk completely ignorant of what's going on in the calling side of things. And so I'd like to call this maybe relativism or Jesus minus, right? Like I want Jesus minus all the things that come with Jesus. I want Jesus minus the demands that Jesus would make on my life if I were to be his, right? So on one hand, we have Jesus plus, This messes everything up because we begin with the question, how much do I have to do in order to get? Or what's the maximum amount I have to do in order to get extra credit or whatever? On this side, it's, I I want the benefits of Jesus without Jesus. Right? That's Jesus minus. And so this is where we kind of go our own way. And we might have a sense of calling, but it's not God's calling. It's all about me. And so... Again, Jesus says in Mark chapter 8, verse 34, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and 
follow me. That there's a death to self-rule there. And an openness to the rule of Jesus. Let him order what I love, what I value, what my mission is. Rather than me determining that based on my own preference or what I can get away with. And then still others of us walk into the third distortion of walking and calling quite easily. I think particularly church folks. Right? Now, this, this could be for anybody, no matter your background, no matter how much you've been in church or not been in church, no matter how familiar you are with the gospel, all of us could end up tipping towards any one of these three distortions. But there is this one that I haven't mentioned yet, and that is the third, which is th- th- those of us who make the mistake of elevating calling and excluding walking. We're really good at knowing the ins and outs and the details of God's call. Our theology is spot on without any effect in our relationships and our attitudes. And you can argue the right biblical truths without having any of that evidence itself and biblical character. And this is, again, uh, to make the mistake of what I would call idealism or Jesus light, right? Where we end up loving ideas about Jesus without being transformed by the love of Jesus. Where it's all about ideas in our heads, the right doctrine, unwilling to take responsibility for right living. It's orthodoxy without orthopraxy, right? Without orthopraxis. This is right doctrine without right living. And so we divorce those two. And this is the kind of spiritual posture where you're very adept at listening to a sermon or reading a text or hearing a truth and you have all kinds of great applications for everybody else you know. You know what I'm talking about? Like, you're here today and you're like, I know somebody, my neighbor really needs to walk worthy of the call. If they only knew how unworthy they were, I could show them. And and, you, and now, this, this is not bad to listen to Scripture through the lens of your relationships and think about how could I pray for the people who might need to be shaped and molded by this truth. That's great. But when we miss out on p- paying attention to our responsibility to respond to truth, we end up in this third distortion where, we, where we're great with understanding calling and completely devoid of walking. Or we walk just enough to fake ourselves out into thinking that we're actually walking it out. Um, Jesus, of course, reserves his harshest words for this distortion, doesn't he? In Matthew 23, when he's talking to the Pharisees, the religious elite of the day, he, he's actually speaking to the crowd around them, right in front of them, and he says, the scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. That is the authority of teaching. And, and so do and observe what they say, what they tell you, but not the works that they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. Three ways to be unworthy that we all can fall into when we're not captivated by the depth of our calling. Right? Are we tracking so far? Get it? Okay, good. All right, it's a little bit fuzzier during first service, so they're, they're like they're the guinea pigs. So you know, um, all right. So Ephesians puts things in quite simple terms. If you want worthy, appropriate before God, axios living, 
then calling and walking need to be in sync. These two are never to be out of sync in our lives. That everything in our lives is meant to be axios, calling and walking. The mature person, the mature church is completely invested. That is, they have skin in the game. They have sacrificed something. They've worked toward understanding the realities of their calling, right? As well as implementing the practice of walking. This takes great humility because we have to start from the standpoint that these things are out of sync. They are. And yet through Christ we become more and more mature, which is more and more axios, worthy of the call. Um, The realities of the Ephesians calling and the realities of our calling in Christ. A calling is really a remarkable, remarkable word where it, it has to do with the way and the means with which God grabs our attention and transforms our affections. And Paul has unpacked calling throughout Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. Let me just read off some of the things that Paul says is true of your calling, my calling. In 1, 3, Paul says that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. What does that have to say about contentment? Right? Uh, 1, 4, we have been chosen in Christ in eternity past. What does that have to say to your worth? We've been adopted into God's family through Jesus. That's 1-5. What does that have to say to uh, your sense of belonging and connectedness to something bigger than yourself? We could keep going. We've been redeemed through the blood of Jesus, accomplishing complete and total forgiveness of sins. That's 1-7. What does that have to say about your sense of shame? Right? Uh, we've been given knowledge of God's plan for all things to be summed up in Christ. That's 1-10. We have an inheritance, 111. 112 says that we have hope in Christ. 113 says that we have been sealed with the down payment of the Holy Spirit. There's a future for you because there's a present deposit of God's own life in you. Right? Uh, we have the power that rose Christ from the dead at work in us. That's 119. Um, we have been rescued from sin, death, devil, and made alive together with Jesus. That's 2, 1 through 7. 2, 8 through 10. We have been saved by grace, not by our own efforts, not by our own earning. Right? We have been made new and been made for a new vocation of good works that we should walk in them. That's 2, 10. We've been uh, given peace between our own hostilities and barriers through Jesus. That is, men, women, all races, all cultures, at peace, potentially, through Jesus, because he himself is the peace. This creates a new humanity of equality between persons. This is to um, 2.14. 2.22, we've been made into the place of God's own habitation, his dwelling. We have access and confidence to approach, approach God with boldness. That's the beginning of chapter 3. All of this through Christ. The gospel, the summons to be in relationship with Jesus is our calling, right? And Paul has unpacked it for us. Does that not captivate you? Does that not motivate you? Does that not move you to a place of realizing your incredible acceptance and worth already as you stand in Christ? What an amazing thing. So calling gets us walking with God. The calling of God gets us walking with God among the people of God, right? It's a gospel summons. And yet, on one hand, the calling of God comes with incredible, infinite privilege. But that 
also comes and confers upon us tremendous responsibility. Right? It's like what uh, Peter Parker, Sp- Spider-Man's uncle, said to him. Right? <laughs> With great uh, privilege comes great responsibility. Except a lot better, right? A lot better <laughs> than Spider-Man. This is be- better than a genetic mutation. This is the calling of God on your life. The eternal one and only God who has created you, redeemed you, drawn you to himself, also confers upon you incredible responsibility. And that's what the walking is about. Six times in Ephesians, you get the metaphor of walking. Actually, seven, right? You once walked in dead ways. Now, uh, in chapter 2, 10, you, God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. Like, our behavior, attitude, ethos, all of us, shaped by an effort for good works. Not earning good works, but good works that are responsive to God's call. 4.1, walk worthy of the calling. 4.17, walk no longer as the Gentiles. So don't walk like the world walks. Don't be characterized by the same competition. Don't be characterized by the same egocentrism. Don't be characterized by the same viciousness or desperation. Walk in love, 5.2. Walk as children of light, 5.8. Therefore, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, 5.15. God calls, we walk. Right? And every exhortation in Ephesians to walk in a particular way is meant to guide us into an axios lifestyle that digs into the calling of God and moves that into our walking. And that is a remarkable privilege and responsibility. So what does it look like? What does it look like to live in balance with calling and walking worthy of one another? What does the worthy walk look like? Well, part of Paul's answer to that question is essentially the rest of the book. So pay attention, right? But also, he gives a bit of a short answer here. And he mentions these four virtues or marks of a worthy walk, if you're taking notes. What does it look like? The first thing, humility. Humility. You know, you, you can imagine like hanging out with a couple of millionaires. That sounds fun, maybe. I don't know where they hang out. Maybe a country club or something. I haven't been invited. <clears throat> and so, um, let's say one of them has earned their millions just through incredible industrious effort. They've been sh- financially shrewd and they're, they have done very well for themselves and they've, they've worked very hard for it. And the other one has uh, inherited this estate. Right? Death of a relative, transfer of wealth over to them, and they're hanging out together. Who would you expect to demonstrate humility? Right? Well, certainly the guy that inherited everything, right? But what, what would, what kind of response would you begin to have if that person began to kind of snub other people, to look down on other people, to think um, of themselves as superior because of their new possessions? Right? What would you want to do? Kick them in the shins, right? Like, you didn't do anything for your wealth. You might even want to aim higher. And you just, what? Like, you didn't do a thing. And yet you're looking down on others for not having what you have. Or you're boasting in all that you have, and yet you haven't earned it. And so, for those of us who have inherited all that Christ gives, right? Without 
any earning on our part, right, we have zero room for arrogance, right? We're to be humble, right? Uh, so Paul's just told us that our being rescued is by God, from God, right? And, and ultimately for him. And so hubris and pride and arrogance and superiority have no place in the Christian life. As if the, the reason your life is a bit more cleaned up than your neighbor's isn't because you're better. It's because God has reached in. He's called you and you've responded in faith. And so humility begins to characterize us. Now, we have to be careful, though, because oftentimes in Christian circles, humility gets robbed of its power and it becomes just something like self-deprecation right? Or, or just flattery of other people. And that's not real humility. Real humility is the result of taking God's perspective on ourselves, to recognize gifting and to be grateful for it, to recognize the source of our worth, right? Humility isn't saying, I'm worthless. It's saying, I have great worth, but I derive it from the right source, from Jesus, from what he's done. Uh, My worth isn't in my achievements, but in the achievement of Christ, right? Given to me by my Father in heaven. And so the person then who's humble is also moldable. I kind of see humility as the gateway virtue, right? if If you're humble, or as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you are poor in spirit, recognize your own spiritual poverty before God, you're, you're a pretty teachable person, aren't you? Right? But if you're kind of fighting for your own power, position, authority, ego, at that point, rather than humility characterizing you, and, and without you, you've shut yourself off now to all kinds of other growing virtues because you've kind of shut, shut off the engine for learning. But humility here is this amazing gateway where when we, when we humble ourselves, we become open to being shaped and molded. And, and it's not passive, but it's actually it's seeking growth. And then, and then Paul moves from humility into gentleness. And this is just such a remarkable thing. He puts this in here. What, what does a person who's powerfully transformed look like? And go around stepping on people, right? Plopping them for when they get things wrong, Oh, they're gentle. They're gentle. And this is really quite uh, incredible. I mean, think about, you could be humble, but not gentle, right? You could kind of think of yourself in proper perspective, and yet you could still kind of be a jerk. So Paul's saying, hey, let's, let's make sure we get these things balanced out here. Right? So the worthy person, they're humble and they're also gentle. You've ever had somebody like verbal vomit on you? Where like you've, you've stepped on a nerve and then all of a sudden they're like spewing stuff out at you and you're like, Whoa! Right? That is what happened there. Like this is this is a person who is who is kind of hot tempered, right? But to be gentle means to be even tempered, right? It means to to kind of keep your cool, right? Somebody says bad things about you, and you go, okay, is it true? If so, I can I can stand in Christ's forgiveness, and I can stand in a willingness to learn. If it's false, then you can say, I hope they get to know me better, right? Uh, because you're gentle, right? Keep moving here. Patience. Uh, Paul says this, this worthy walk is a patient walk. Again, another one of the fruit of the Spirit here in Galatians 5, the evidences of God's Spirit at work in your life, gentleness and patience. Now, how good is a humble person and a gentle person if they're not patient? Like, I appreciated those five minutes where you were humble and gentle, but then things got hard and you just kind of lost it. This, this would be an ineffective humility and gentleness, right? So patience here kind of fills that out. 
A worthy walk involves patience because our calling comes from a patient God. The word here could be translated long-suffering. I love this because it calls us out, right? We're like, yeah, I'm totally patient. So you're willing to endure suffering for a long time? Well, <laughs> that's what patience is. It's, an, it's, a, it's a, a readiness right, to, to experience annoyance for a long time. Right? And, uh, John Chrysostom, uh, early church preacher, kind of grounds his definition of patience in its etymology, which basically means to have uh, a large and wide and big soul. Right? So this idea has to do with exercising a largeness of soul that can endure annoyances over a long period of time. I'm, I'm really, I'm willing to endure this. Again, not to be walked over or abused, but to say, I'm really willing to be put out for the other. And then he rounds it out, culminates with bearing with one another in love. Again, if you want to walk an axios life, a life worthy of the calling, a life in balance, a life when you say that life looks the way God meant it to look, it's going to be humble and gentle and patient. And it's also going to bear with others in love. Now, this seems to indicate a major presupposition about life. And that is expect friction. Do you guys do that in your marriage? The kids, the community group, at work, here. Do you expect friction? Or are you surprised by it, shocked by it, and disappointed by it? Right? Sometimes yes, right? Sometimes yeah, that's just really disappointing. But if it's part of our expectation that, that we're going to have to bear with one another, it also helps us be fully committed to doing so in love, right? Over time, iron sharpens iron, and maybe things get smoother. But instead of reacting and saying, oh, there's friction between us, I'm out. I'm either going to avoid you or I'm going to try to control you. We end up bearing with, right, in love, which says, I'm still going to touch base with you and seek what's best and actually survive with you. I love, um, like, this is a big throwback, but remember Lost, ABC's Lost, Jack, the kind of one of the main characters, great line, either live together or die alone. You know, you cannot have a society survive without loving forbearance. Nor can you have a church that actually has impact in the world without loving forbearance. This is part of our call. And so, if we actually want to live this way, let me tell you, we have zero chance of doing it unless we see it through the lens of who Jesus already is and what he's done. I mean, think with me for a second. Is all of this already true of Christ? I mean, he's the humble one, the one who humbled himself even to death on a cross. He is the gentle one, the one who says to those burdened who are weary, he says, come to me. I'm gentle and humble of heart. Jesus is the patient one. He is the embodiment of the Exodus 34 God who describes himself as slow to anger, right? Long of nostrils, able to go... In light of opposition, rather than just zap us. Jesus is the one who chiefly bears with humanity at the cross in love. As as, as humanity hurls insults at the Savior, he bears with us in love. And when you see that, 
It unlocks the reality of the calling. It captures us. And we realize, I'm not called to anything that God hasn't already walked. And it motivates us and it gives us an ability to live in that. As we focus our attention on the one who's utterly humble, totally gentle, completely patient, and forbears in love at the cost of his own life. And when we realize the worth of that, of what Jesus has done, it begins to move us in a way that we can actually live that way. So we walk worthy of the call. And that means that when my ego is challenged, when I suffer insult, right, I can rest in my calling. I can rest in the worth that God's already given me and the acceptance that I have in Christ so much that I can maintain an attitude of humility. Or uh, it means that when I raise my hands on Sunday morning to praise God, it also means then that I don't raise my hands at home to intimidate my kids. Right? Because I can be gentle. Because Jesus has absorbed my own hurt and is dealing with my fear. Right? It means that when I experience delays in my agenda, at work or at the store, or at, at anywhere with people, what comes out of my heart can be big and wide of soul. Can absorb that. Allow annoyances to happen in, with patience. Right? without trying to control others or avoid them. And ultimately, when I see weakness in people or in myself, instead of retaliating or, or avoiding, can resort to serving them, praying for them, and asking how God will move in their lives and help me show them better love. That is loving forbearance. And so calling moves us to walking. Amen? But where is all of this going? What's the purpose of it? How, how, how do we move forward from axios from calling and walking where is it all going paul says eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace when jesus prays for the church in john 17 he prays this amazing prayer right he asks the father i don't ask for these only as in his disciples but for all who will believe that's you and me uh that they all may be one just as you father are in me and i in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What happens to us when we don't live in unity? We cut the gospel message off at its knees in our culture. And yet, when we can move forward together and say, we are clear on Jesus' heart and mission and our loyalty to King Jesus, and we can disagree on a bunch of other stuff, then you know what? You've got something powerful. Eager to maintain unity. This is about, this takes work. Maintenance, right? I mean, think about your home and how many things you have to do in order to maintain it. This isn't about getting something we don't already have. Paul says, it's there. It's yours. God's created unity. Our job is to maintain it, to keep it up, to guard it, to protect it, to pursue it. And that takes a few disciplines. The first discipline that comes to my mind is the discipline of the mind, that when I have a relationship with somebody, I, I actually have to discipline my mind to think the best of them rather than the worst. Because if I think the worst of them, that opens up a whole bunch of options, right, that are unworthy of my calling. But if I begin to think the best of them, if I'm gracious towards them, then I'm open to seeking something better. There's also the discipline of the mouth, actually holding our tongue when we have that bit of info that could put a wedge between others. That could lead people to the wrong or ungracious conclusion about others. 
And also, you know, maybe most of all, the discipline of time. Because we're busy. And how can you maintain the unity of the Spirit if you're not in relationship with the people who have the Spirit? This is why we do community groups here. And and this is why we need leaders. And this is why we need you to open up space in your life, in your home, to cultivate a unified church that happens through relationships of effort in a bond of peace. What's the bond of peace in Ephesians? Go back to chapter 2. Christ himself is our peace. What's the glue that sticks Cedar Mill together? We're going through a leadership transition. We're about to go through, we're going through a model transition, right? Where we're moving more from program to community groups and that takes great effort and energy. Again, leadership transition. What's the glue? What keeps us stuck? It's not personality. It's not program. It's the king, right? It's loyalty to King Jesus that moves us together in unity and a desire for the world to know him and for us to grow in him. And you know what? We need resources for that kind of life. We need resources for an axios life. And Paul lists off this amazing list of seven things that are ultimately true of us. He went from telling us all these things that are true to exhorting us how to live in light of it and reminding us again of what is true. And and so he lists off uh, seven things that all come uh, preceded by the word one. One, in that everything he lists is utterly unique. There are no imitations of it anywhere to be found of worth. And also, it is the very thing that unifies us together. The resources are are, are these, and I need to move through them quickly because time is running out. Although you're second service, and I could make you stay. Um, So, all right, one, one body. One body. This is such an incredible resource for a unified life. If you realize I am stuck together with other people, of great things to learn from them, to be formed by them. And I'm not living my life for myself. I'm simply not because I am part of one body. And you know what? It should never be a problem, right, for, for us to, like, recruit people to the work of the ministry here, right? And so, you know, if you want to begin to live in light of the body and to be able to put energy into being a part of the body, you know what? It, the best way to do that is to begin to serve, Right? And some of you get, there's like some people who serve like in 20 ministries and it's like, whoa, calm down, take a Sabbath because um, you're going to burn out, but thank you. <laughs> and then there's others, right? We're, we move in and out of the building, disconnected from the body. The best way to be connected to the body is to serve alongside other people. You know, that one easy way to do that is to help out with hospitality on Sunday morning here. It's like once a month, hang out, set some donuts up, smile at people, you can make a difference in somebody's life. Um, email Heather Zimley about that if you're interested, right? So one body, I'm connected to people, called to the body of Christ, one spirit. Again, the same spiritual DNA in each believer, right? Who gives gifts, everybody equally valuable to the kingdom and gifted utterly differently in order to accomplish kingdom things. One hope, we share a common future, one Lord, Jesus Christ, the central person in the list of seven, three things before him, three things after him, Jesus at the center of the list. He is what glues us together, the ultimate resource. We have his life in us. And when you surrender to him, your allegiance to him, it shapes everything else in your life. If you're here today and you're like, I don't, my life doesn't look anything like an Axios life. There's nothing, I wouldn't call it worthy. You know, the first step is to respond to the call, to respond to Jesus, to say, bow my knee to the king to live for him 
because he has given everything for me. I'm moved by love. And I want to begin to live for him. And you know what? As you respond to him in your life, you become a worthy person because he's made you worthy by what he's done on the cross. This is good news. One faith. Can we apprehend Jesus through faith? Right? This isn't something we, we get to test out in a tube. This is something you work out in life, holding on to Jesus through trust. One baptism, the one thing that utterly identifies us as Christ followers is death to self and life to God through Jesus who come out of the water defined and identified by our shared relationship with Christ. And one God, one Father of all, there is one God, Father, Son, and Spirit. This is the God of our salvation. This is the God who we meet in the face of Jesus, who we experience through the gift of the Spirit, who we embrace through the call of the gospel, and the God for whom we walk worthy in all things, the God who meets us here at the table, the bread and the cup. And we need to respond to him today in worship and and proclaiming our trust in him by receiving the bread and the cup today. We're going to end there and celebrate there because we realize that the worthy one has given everything to make us worthy. And we, we nourish that calling as we take the bread and the cup. It reminds us of the call. God has invited us to know him at the cost of his own life. And this reminds us and sends us out empowered, nourished by the truth. Let's pray together and we'll take communion. Father in heaven, we thank you for the incredible privilege of gospel call and the incredible responsibility of gospel walking. Help us not to live in the distortions, but to live in balance constantly aware of what the gospel call creates in us, constantly aware of our own walking in light of it. We do so through uh, Jesus. And now we move to worship him, to, to, to nourish our faith on his act of loving self-sacrifice on the cross as we take in bread and juice, nourish our faith, unify us in the spirit, and send us out to be your voices of hope in the world. In Jesus' name, amen.